Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. That was Tom Morello getting us started, singing a song of freedom. I appreciate Tom as an artist and an activist, a singer and a songwriter, and a guitar magician. I'd better add that none of that is magical, even when it feels like magic, because Tom is one of the most disciplined, hardworking, passionate, and committed people that I've ever known. And like many of you, he chooses to stand on the freedom side, and he creates a consistent soundtrack, day by day, year after year, for his own life and for ours, which is a heartfelt and multi-layered cry for freedom. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malika Leem and I are gathered here with you under the tree for our seminar on freedom. We breathe deeply and count ourselves active members of an energetic and insurgent community. We continue to ask ourselves, and we ask you, where in the world are we, and where are we in the world? How can we best name this social, political, historical moment? We're bound together in this fugitive space, looking uneasily at the world we've inherited, and busy in projects of repair and revolution. We open each episode with a poem, are by now familiar practice. Today we have two poems, a generative match, and they're read by our regular contributor, Light Ailee. Here is a poem by the renowned Rilke. Sometimes a man stands up during supper and walks outside and keeps walking because of a church that stands somewhere in the east, and his children say blessings on him as if he were dead. And another man remains in his own house, stays there, inside the dishes and in the glasses, so that his children have to go far out into the world, toward that same church which he forgot. And here is a poem by a 15-year-old girl charged with an adult crime and locked up in juvenile detention in Chicago, asked by her teacher to rewrite any poem of the ones they'd studied. She chose Rilke using her own lived experiences to tell a different story, but still within the spirit and rhythm of the original. Sometimes a woman stands up during her pregnancy and goes to the clinic, and walks out a few hours later because of a future that stands somewhere in her own mind, and her parents and her boyfriend curse her as if she was dead. And another woman has the baby, lives there inside of the diapers and the days of babysitting, so that her boyfriend can go out into the world toward a future which she had to forget. Thank you so much, Lady. Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to create a short, authentic, and spontaneous piece from nowhere. The nowhere of the underground, the nowhere of under the tree, and the nowhere of utopia. Today's prompt is a question, two questions really. What history do you stand on? And what future do you stand for? Okay, start writing. We'll be right here when you return. 
Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews, and follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Hey, Ms. Malik, in case you hadn't heard, Illinois became the first state in the union to end the use of money bond last month. If you don't know what that is, that's the practice of charging people money to get out of jail before they've even been convicted of a crime. I did a little talk at a teach-in this weekend about the bill, how it passed, and what's actually in it. So take a listen. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for having me, Rich. Uh, my name is Malik Aleem. Um, I'm the campaign coordinator for the Coalition to End Money Bond. Um, so the Coalition to End Money Bond is a formation of 14 different organizations that are Cook County based um, that have been doing the work of challenging the constitutionality of the money bond system, uh, as well as trying to get state legislation uh, passed to end the practice of charging people money uh, for their freedom before they've been charged, uh, before they've been convicted of a crime. Um, and so uh, we are kind of in a celebratory mode, but we're also looking forward to implementation because the Pretrial Fairness Act was part of uh, the Black Caucus's um, criminal justice reform bill that passed earlier this year. Um, and so what that means, um, particularly in uh, in terms of the pretrial fairness part, um, what that means is that we have uh, effectively abolished money bond. Uh, we've become the first state in the union to completely abolish the use of money bond, effective January 2023. Um, and what, what there's also other provisions as a part of the pretrial fairness act, right? It doesn't just end money bond; it creates a whole different way of approaching how we look at um, if the decision of if a person should be. Uh, put in a cage is honestly, obviously, a lot of us believe, including myself, that no one should be put in a cage. Um, but we are moving towards abolition. And as such, um, this is a, a win in, in terms of how we make those decisions. Uh, and so um, a, a good way, I think a simple way to look at it is that um, effective in January 2023, instead of the kind of presumption of detention uh, that most people have experienced uh, if they find themselves in, in the justice system, right? The presumption that if you quote unquote break a law um, or if you find yourself on the other end of, of law enforcement, um, that you are, you will probably be uh, locked up until you are given a money bond or until you um, are given a trial. Um, now, uh, since the Pre-Child Fairness Act has passed, we've kind of, um, we now have a, a, a presumption of release as opposed to a presumption of detention, um, if that makes sense. And so that means that we've created a, um, what's called a detention eligibility net um, so that a, a, a small portion of um, of charges um, are eligible for detention, right? Which doesn't mean that if that charges, it lands on you that you will be detained. It just means that detention is eligible. There's a, a much larger uh, kind of set of, um, I hate using this word, but offenses, right? Charges that people, people can be charged with that are no longer um, eligible for detention. Um, and so, uh, one of my colleagues in, in the, the coalition, uh, often says that, you know, they, they never thought that we would be able to say that you cannot be, 
put in in into jail uh, for a drug charge now in, um, uh, for having drugs in, in this in this state, right? And so that is as a result of us kind of shifting this idea that um, you know breaking a law means that you will be put into jail, right? What 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 we understand that. Uh, what we what we know is that a lot of quote unquote uh, jailable offenses, uh, even if you are convicted, right? Those people oftentimes do not even see jail time. Oftentimes, um, the penalty for uh, a lot of the crimes that that people are put into jail for don't actually uh, pretrial don't actually result in jail time uh, post conviction if someone is convicted. Um, and so, um, another uh, kind of provision of the Pretrial Fairness Act is that it reforms the process uh, for violations of pretrial release conditions. Um, so before it was a um, a felony to violate the um, the provisions of, of pretrial release. So if you're released pretrial and, and say you're put on electronic monitoring, before it would be a um, a felony to like if you you needed to go to the store for example and, and you're on electronic monitoring those uh, those penalties have been decreased because we understand that electronic monitoring is just incarceration in in one's own home um, and so that when we understand that we're ensuring credit and we're ensuring that people get the ability to move around on electronic monitoring um, so that they can they can take they can go to the grocery store they can feed themselves things like that. Um, we also have reformed the warrant process, um, meaning that uh, we've shifted the kind of general language around if you don't show up to court, um, if right, we understand that most people who don't show up to court are dealing with life issues, right? De- are dealing with um, barriers that may prevent them from being able to get there. They have jobs that do not allow them time off. They have children that they can't get childcare for. Most people who miss court are not willfully fleeing from the from from prosecution or 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 going on the run from the government. Um, and so, as a part of the Pretrial Fairness Act, uh, we've reformed that that warrant process. Um, so that um, folks who uh, there's a distinction between failing to appear uh, and willfully fleeing from prosecution now, um, and we are the first state in in the in the union to to make that distinction within our statutes. Um, and then a big part of it also is that we are uh, that we've created a um, insurance of transparency and data collection through each different county uh, court system in our state. Um, which is really important, right? We, through the process of advocating for our legislation, we try to find out where is it, you know, wh- what different locales are locking up people for what reasons, how much money is being extracted from black and brown communities through the money bond process, um, and what can we do about it, right? We, we, we understand that, unfortunately, um, that a lot of these smaller kind of towns uh, are counting on money bonds and extracting that money from uh, from those communities in order to actually run their court systems. And that's unconscionable, right? We shouldn't be budgeting based on um, extracting resources from communities that don't have them in the first place. Um, and so as a result, now we, um, we will see, right? We will see what are these different counties doing? Who are they locking up? Why are they locking them up? Um, what are the charges that people are receiving? And are people actually uh, are the stakeholders actually following the new statutes? Um, 
It's time now for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, where we talk to folks who can help us name this political moment and think more deeply about building an irresistible movement for freedom and justice, about what is to be done. We release our radical imaginations and ask both what's going on, and then, most important, what are we going to do about it? I'm grateful to be joined today by Flint Taylor, a longtime friend and comrade. He's a renowned civil and human rights attorney who's litigated many consequential cases involving police brutality, corruption and cover-ups within the Chicago Police Department, official government misconduct, and systematic white supremacy. Flint, thanks so much for being here. It's great to be with you, Bill. Uh, I really want to cover so much territory. In fact, your, your professional life and your movement life covers so much territory. We're not going to get to it all. But I thought maybe we would start with today, uh, naming this moment, and then work our way backward through your monumental book, your tremendous book, uh, The Torture Machine. I definitely want to get into that, talk about uh, what you wrote and how you captured all those, all those moments. But let's start with this political moment. We just witnessed a white supremacist uprising. We've witnessed uh, you dogged people's law office people continuing to uncover more and more um, outrages about uh, the FBI and the police. Maybe we'll start just with this week. Um, didn't you get some revelations this week about J. Edgar Hoover? We did. Uh, Jeff Haas and I uh, and Aaron Leonard, who had done an uh, FOIA um, about five years ago on uh, the FBI's file on Roy Martin Mitchell. And Roy Martin Mitchell was the FBI agent in charge of racial matters here in Chicago. And he controlled William O'Neill, the infamous uh, informant provocateur who set up uh, the Fred Hampton raid uh, on December 4th, 1969, by drawing a floor plan. Uh, O'Neill drew a floor plan that showed where Fred slept and, and, and outlined the entire apartment where the raid took place. And Mitchell supplied that uh, floor plan uh, to Ed Hanrahan, the state's attorney of Cook County, uh, and the 14 police uh, working under uh, Hanrahan's command. The documents that Aaron Leonard got and uh, supplied uh, Jeff Haas and myself uh, were documents from Mitchell's personnel file. Mm. Um, we should have gotten these back in 1976 and 1977 when we were trying the uh, monumental uh, Fred Hampton civil rights case for 18 months. Uh, the government was caught covering up evidence and they had to turn over over 200 files of FBI documents. But lo and behold, these documents were not uh, in there. And these documents uh, uh, showed that uh, Hoover himself, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, was involved and had knowledge of the raid, uh, was encouraging and rewarding Mitchell for the raid, and that the two uh, uh, underlings, but most powerful men in the FBI with regard to domestic intelligence, William C. Sullivan uh, and George Moore, were also involved in rewarding and speaking with uh, Mitchell uh, around the time of the raid. And if we had those documents, we would have been able to take uh, the chain all the way back 
to Hoover, which we were trying to do and which we understood politically uh, because of the documents, the COINTELPRO documents, that not only was the local FBI involved, but that uh, Hoover and, and Sullivan and more had to have been as well. But we were we were stymied by the government and by the judge. So here we are 50 years later, still uncovering evidence about the depth of the FBI's counterintelligence program and the depth putting uh, faces on the unnamed people down in Washington uh, who were involved. And lo and behold, they are the faces of J. Edgar Hoover, William C. Sullivan and George Moore. Um, you're saying we're uncovering more and more. How would you, in ordinary lay terms, how would you describe the FBI as an institution in regards to Fred Hampton, but as an institution in this country for 100 years? How do you describe the FBI? Well, you, you, you look at the history and, and uh, the first 60 or so years is synonymous with J. Edgar Hoover. And of course, J. Edgar Hoover started the uh, FBI, and before even the F- he w- there was an FBI per se, he was in the Justice Department leading the P- Palmer raids back in 1919. And that's how the focus of the FBI, uh, as Hoover uh, uh, took it over or created it, uh, uh, focused on the left, focused on, 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 on black liberation folks like Marcus Garvey back in that day. That's and right. then you, you and then you trace it, you know, you trace it up through uh, what they did uh, against the Communist Party, what they did against the Socialist Workers Party in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. And then you come to us, you come to us and you come to the Panthers and you come to uh, uh, SDS and the Weathermen and uh, all of a sudden. Uh, and of course, before that, and, and, and most seriously, you come to Martin Luther King and Stokely Carmichael and Rap Brown uh, and uh, Malcolm X, Elijah Muhammad. And those were the people that Hoover and the COINTELPRO program in the 60s targeted. And when I say targeted, people think uh, of the FBI as crime solving, perhaps, if they're not really educated about uh, what it's really all about. And then the next level you think about uh, is surveillance, but COINTELPRO was and uh, its derivatives are beyond either crime fighting or surveillance. It's about disruption and ultimately destroying uh, black, primarily black liberation organizations, particularly back in the 60s when they targeted uh, the men, the leaders that I mentioned in their organizations. Uh, and then it dovetailed as the Panthers became a force in the late 1960s to focus on the Black Panthers. Uh, and as the uh, church committee uh, found in 1976, that COINTELPRO was to focus on destroying the Black Panther Party. Right, right. So you go back to the beginning, the Palmer raids, for folks who don't know, were raids on largely immigrant communities, socialists, um, and deporting people in large numbers back to Italy, back to Germany, back to, to wherever they'd come from. So it's a long and sordid history. But then you come more recently and you see former director Comey apologizing uh, for certain kinds of things. What does that, how do you take that in? How do you understand that? 
Well, um, I guess it's it's easier to apologize for things that happened 50 years ago than to look and try to uh, deal with what's going on now. Uh, Comey is a kind of a complex figure. Uh, it's easy to see him in a light of uh, of the good guys in a way because he spoke out against Trump and 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 all of that. But then you look at his history uh, back with. Um, um, the uh, Justice Department um, back when when they were dealing uh, in the wake of um, uh, 9/11 and and the repression and, and and all the way to Guantanamo and 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 the torture and the waterboarding that was going on, Comey had kind of a weak voice, I think, against some of that. But nonetheless, that all went on. And so uh, you have to really look at the FBI now only uh, and primarily in light of that history that you and I have been talking about. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think I think sometimes a a person like Comey, as you say, because of the recent he gets a little gloss because of the attacks he's under from Trump. I was saying this the other day about Merrick Garland. You know, Garland looks good because he was attacked so, you know, viciously by the people who prevented him from being Obama's nomination to the Supreme Court. But if you look at Garland's record or Comey's record, I, for me, when Dylan Roof shot up the church and killed all those people in uh, in South Carolina, Comey just let it pass. I mean, he didn't call that terrorism, and yet he was on the path of everybody else is a terrorist, you know, except for the white supremacists. So, yeah, I have a, a real problem making that pivot. And yet here we are, right? I mean, um, a white supremacist insurrection takes place uh, in the Capitol. Um, and uh, and how, do we, how, do we, how do we name this moment? How do we understand that? Uh, again, uh, I look back in, an, in another uh, phase of, of the work that we have done, and that is the work in, in Greensboro, North Carolina, back in the late 70s and early 80s. And of course, the uh, Klan and the Nazis had a real union at that time. And there was uh, um, a grouping of various white supremacist organizations uh, in the late 70s, uh, and they attacked uh, the anti uh Klan and the, the, the anti-fascist demonstrators in Greensboro in November of 1979. And I thought back on that. And when I was in that moment, I was thinking back and, 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 and understanding and, and, and gathering evidence together of what the FBI and the Klan did in the 60s with regard to the civil rights movement, with regard to informants that were basically running the Klan in the South, and the the, the fact that uh, police and the FBI during that era would would turn their backs on on uh, the Klan, uh, whether it be at the at the bus station in Birmingham or other violence, uh, the murders of Viola Luizzo, where in fact one of the uh, murderers was an FBI informant pr- provocateur, and you look at all of that, and you look at what happened in Greensboro, and what we uncovered there was it wasn't just the Klan, and it wasn't just the Nazis and all the white supremacists who were coming together in not so different a fashion. Uh, as they are now, mm. uh, but they didn't have a social media 
it wasn't as much a national phenomenon because there wasn't that kind of ability to organize nationally at that point. But um, it turns out the Greensboro police turned their backs on it. The FBI turned their backs on it. And they had an FBI informant provocateur who led the caravan into the uh, housing project where the demonstration was. So we look at that. Then we look at Charlottesville. We got them. Here we are again. And so when I look at it, I look at it through the lens of, of my, and I'm sure it goes back farther, but, but, but my understanding uh, and, and coming to grips with the history starts in the 60s mm. with the collaboration uh, not only of, of fascist and, and white supremacist groups, but their collaboration with uh, police, police informants, FBI, FBI informants, and as you could say, the whole nine yards that we're looking at here today. And we have not plumbed the depths Mm-hmm. of all of this, right? We, we see the surface right now in terms of uh, the police, uh, the Capitol Police, for example. We don't know yet who among those uh, crazies inside were informants. We don't know how much those informants had told their various uh, police agencies and, and federal agencies what was going to happen. Uh, all of that may be still being discovered 50 years from now, like we're discovering still the depth of the Fred Hampton case. Well, one of the things, when people describe the People's Law Office, which is your law office, and one of the, an absolutely stellar institution in Chicago built by young lawyers 50 years ago. How many years ago? Is it 50? Uh, 51 now. Yeah, I was, at, I was at the 50th anniversary celebration. But that law office, when people describe it, they always say, dogged. That is a dogged group of lawyers. And I always, I, I love that word because it reminds me of a dog with a bone. And I've never seen anyone as persistent as you in pursuing justice on a case like the Fred Hampton case. 50 years later, you're still pursuing it. And the John Burge case and, you know, so many others. Um, so I, I think I think that's something that's, but, but I want to talk, I want to ask you two quick questions. One is, when people talk, it's become popular to talk about police and and so and criminal justice reform how do what do you think people have to be aware of when they fall into that conversation what should we be careful about in terms of getting on the bandwagon for criminal justice reform what's called criminal justice reform well you know as you said we've been at it for 50 years and we've been up against it and in it fighting it um, that being the uh, criminal uh injustice system, as you might call it, the mass incarceration uh, system, uh, uh, the the, uh, school to prison pipeline system, which you are extremely familiar with. Um, And we've seen various reforms. And in some ways, as lawyers, uh, we pioneered some of the some of the civil cases that allowed us to get into the systemic problems, whether it be torture, whether it be the failure to discipline uh, repeater cops, brutal cops, whether it be the failure to screen out cops, all of the kinds of things uh, that uh, are well, we will probably see again as on the table of reform uh, as a uh, some apparently very good people are being named to the civil rights division of the Justice Department. Uh, 
But there's but there what we've also seen is those kind of reforms, those procedural reforms really don't fundamentally change things. So then you look at the young folks who are saying, even though they haven't lived through, you know, decades of seeing it not work, they see that it doesn't work now. That doesn't sound right to them. What sounds right to them is defunding the police. What sounds right to them is abolition of the police, abolition of the of prisons. And I know as old timers, when we first, and I can't speak for you, but when you first hear those things, you, they sound good, right? But they, but, but from here to there seems like a very long uh, uh, slug or, but, but as you say, we've been doing it for 50 years. And if you don't put out the goals, if you don't put out what see, what, 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 what the ultimate solution has to be, then you can't work towards it. If you're satisfied with changing uh, um, a, re- a regulation or, or, or disciplinary uh, approach in the police department, particularly if you don't have a buy-in by everyone from the mayor down through the police superintendent, through all the supervisors, through the FOP, we could spend a whole uh, podcast on the FOP and the racism and the white supremacism white supremacist nature of the fraternal order of police and other police unions. So you're up against something uh, that you, that isn't going to, to take kindly to reform. Uh, And, 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 and and now that we see so much neoliberalism that has, has taken over over the last decades uh, and we see the kinds of programs and uh, in education and and and, and we see, and, and and all the other you know poverty and all that needs to be dealt with and we see all the money going to the cops and we see more and more money going to militarism. There's a there's a disconnect there that 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 the young folks are raising right when they're saying defund the police. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, we need to support that. We need to support those folks who are saying that, even if that, uh, even if it seems like uh, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Well, nothing's going to happen tomorrow. But I think you're right. If you don't know where you're headed, how do you know how to take a step toward it? And so, uh, I'm raising this question of reforms. For example, body cameras. You know, I mean, I think a lot of the young people I work with would say, "Body cameras, stop patrolling our neighborhood. You don't need a body camera." You know. And, and it's all, it, it comes down to those kinds of things. But with all the talk now, with the Biden election and all the talk about um, finally dealing with systemic racism, and then you look at the kind of anemic proposals that are on the floor, it does, it does make you uh, want to go to the, to the young activists and say, I'm with you. Let's, uh, let's figure out how we can, you know, persuade people, make the argument. Um, what kind of society would we live in? Uh, if we could live without police. I think that's an important question. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely an important question. Now, you know, Illinois just um, just got rid of uh, cash bail. I believe it's the first state in the union. Is that true? Uh, if not the first, it's certainly one of the first. That's it's, it's, it, it, a major accomplishment by the movement and uh, the, the uh, movement against cash bail. When you say it's an accomplishment of the movement, I, I, I think so, too. But how do you, why do you frame it that way as opposed to an accomplishment of the legislature? What did the how, how is that an accomplishment of the movement? 
Well, we know, the, the, in fact, we, we uh, are friends with and comrades with some of the main people who f- have fought this issue for, if not uh, five to 10 years. And it wouldn't be on the plate of the legislatures, obviously, on the plate of Kim Fox uh, or others, no matter how well-meaning they might be or not be, if that political pressure and, and it wasn't there. And, and I think also the, uh, the pandemic has also raised uh, the importance of uh, uh, people getting out of jail and not being held in jail on bond because they can't pay, because that, they are subjected uh, to the highest levels of risk in terms of COVID-19 that we have anywhere uh, short of the uh, uh, reservations and, and the indigenous folks right. and other people of color who are, are so uh, victimized and vulnerable to the, to the pandemic. So um, it, it, it's a victory. It's a double victory, I would say, at this particular point in the history uh, to, to, to have that uh, accomplishment. Now, we'll have to see how, how these judges, and, and yeah, we've been dealing with these judges in Cook County uh, for, for as long as I've been a lawyer, and even before then, obviously, and the corruption there. And the the fact that they're former state's attorneys and the fact that they want to see uh, the people of color uh, who come um, into their courtrooms locked up as dangerous folks, as folks that they uh, uh, they don't want on the streets. So there'll be a there'll be a pushback. And and, and that pushback won't just be from the Fraternal Order of Police, uh, who has tried to use that concept uh, to get rid of Kim Fox, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also we'll see it in the courtrooms and we'll see these judges. We'll just have to see how they interpret uh, the, the, the ways that they can keep people in jail mm-hmm. uh, before trial uh, and have to fight back against that. Yeah. Kim Fox is part of a generation of so-called progressive prosecutors. And I know she's come under intense, not only scrutiny, but uh, attack from the Fraternal Order of Police from uh, the sheriff's unions and others. Um, my son, as you know, Chesa Boudin is part of that too. But Chesa, Chesa would argue, and, and I'm interested in your take on this movement of, of progressive prosecutors. Chesa would certainly argue that we, we have to be very concrete about the kinds of structural uh, changes that we're advocating, not, not just vaguely we're going to get rid of struct, uh, you know, systemic racism. We have to say exactly what that means. And for him, it means getting people out of jail and uh, not not letting them rot there, waiting for, uh, you know, waiting for uh, a trial. And, and, and just uh, another aside on that, it's kind of fascinating to me that these white supremacists who are being rounded up, they get out on bail right away, right? And and yet, so many people in Cook County and Illinois and everywhere sit in jail waiting for trial, presumed innocent. Um, it's, it's really a crime. But I'm, I'm interested in your take on the progressive prosecutors, what they can and can't do. Well, obviously, and I'm sure Chaser would be the first to, to, to say this, that, that there are limitations within, they work, within which they work in the same way there are limitations that we as civil rights lawyers work within. Uh, but when you look across the country from Boston to Philadelphia uh, to, of course, San Francisco and here, you can't help 
but think that these kind of uh, prosecutors who have a conscience, who have an understanding of racism, who, who, who are people of color in many instances, um, that that's, that's important. That's important. That isn't, I mean, it kind of, in a way, uh, it doesn't, uh, it, it helps. The, it, it's on the road to abolition, right? Mm-hmm. It's, I'm sure Chaser would say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the, and I think that, I, I don't know if Kim Fox would say that, but she certainly has made uh, steps here, not only with regard to bail, but with regard to sentencing. And that's why the Jesse Smollett thing was such, an interesting and in a way disturbing case because they made such a big deal out of something that in essence was was the kind of relief that not only Jesse Smollett, uh, you know, a rich uh, black man uh, should get, but uh, that kind of sentencing consideration that untold hundreds and thousands of poor black and uh, brown and people of color in the jail should get when particularly these kinds of cases that are not, you know, violent cases that are that 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 that, that they shouldn't be in jail. They shouldn't be sitting there. Right. I mean, they made such a focus on it. The FOP, you know, the idea that somehow she was bending over backwards for Jesse Smollett. It was a nothing case, class four felony, nonviolent, insane. Of course, he should not be in jail. You know, um, I agree with you. Um, ha- have you been threatened? Um, do you get threats from the police or do you implicit or explicit? You must. Well, I have pretty, I haven't been by my offices often lately. <laughs> Good. <laughs> you know, we, we were threatened obviously, uh, during the, the, the Fred Hampton case, not only we, but of course our clients, uh, were threatened. Uh, Bill Hampton, Fred's brother who came to court all the time, Doc Satchel, who was one of the surviving Panthers, uh, the, 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 the cops, when we'd be in the lunchroom, would threaten them. Uh, we always had a very big worry that O'Neill, the, who, who had been banished by the government into to, to secrecy, might show up. Uh, and, and of course, during the Burge, uh, the, height, the height of the Burge uh, battles in court, in the Wilson cases, uh, when there were demonstrations, uh, that, yes, we, we were threatened. Um, and uh, we learned later that the lawyers on the other side had, had, had uh, gotten our home addresses, had gotten, you know, uh, our license plates. And yeah, you know, it, you don't want to think about it too much, but you want to be careful. You know, so so you mentioned the Burge case that, you know, the 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 book that you wrote runs from the Fred Hampton case up through Burge. And I think the Burge case has so many um, important lessons. And again, the People's Law Office was the most dogged pursuer of that. But maybe you tell listeners what the Burge case is, who the Wilson brothers are um, and talk a bit about reparations. I think that was one of the most extraordinary victories we've ever seen in criminal justice um all of that's right um the how much time you got in terms of cases? <laughs> well you've written you've written quite a thick book about all this so I'd, uh, i have i have you know but i've learned to kind of boil it down a little bit uh when i speak uh and then when i teach about it um the 
Burge, of course, was a uh, deca- uh, decorated Vietnam veteran who learned his uh, his torture techniques in Vietnam uh, on a POW camp in, in, in the late 60s. He came back to Chicago, became a detective on the South Side, uh, and uh, took up the business of torturing black suspects in serious cases. And the most uh, infamous case was the Jackie and Andrew Wilson case. Uh, and that happened in 1982. Uh, they were charged with and ultimately convicted of killing two white cops. Uh, Andrew, who was the shooter, was was tortured for hours with electric shock and and, and suffocation and beating and burned on a radiator uh, to give a confession by Burge, John Burge, uh, who at that time was a lieutenant uh, in charge of an entire division on the south side of Chicago. Jackie was also tortured, but not quite as severely because uh, he was uh, the driver of the car, according to the evidence, rather than the shooter. Both of them went away. Uh, uh, Andrew uh, went away first with the death penalty, Jackie with two life sentences. The torture was so extreme of Andrew Wilson uh, that the Illinois Supreme Court ultimately reversed his case. He got a new trial uh, and one juror held out against the death penalty and saved his life. Jackie also got a new trial. He was convicted again. Uh, And about the time that Andrew was retried in the mid to late 80s, he had filed a lawsuit, a pro se. And no lawyers wanted to take his case. And the lawyers that were appointed quickly ducked out of it. So he contacted us. And he spoke to me and John Stainthorpe at at the People's Law Office because of our reputation in the Hampton case, Mm -hmm. sort of like the lawyers of last resort. And uh, we we debated it a little bit, but the principle was clear that no one should be tortured, whether uh, 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 an alleged or actually convicted cop killer or uh, anyone else, innocent, guilty, doesn't matter. So we took on the case in 87. And the rest, as they say, is history in terms of 550 pages in my book and prologues that have developed in the last year or two uh, since that I, I, I published the book. Mm-hmm. But suffice it to say, we, we fought two trials in, in, in Andrew's civil case, uh, during which an anonymous police source who worked with Burge exposed the pattern and practice of torture, exposed that Daly, who was the state's attorney, that's Richie Daly, uh, was, had knowledge along with all the police superintendent and, and many other people. And we started to unpeel that onion of the uh, pattern and practice over the next 20 and 30 years. And it led to uncovering, uh, with, of course, in, in lockstep with the movement and, and the families of, and the survivors themselves of torture, of, of more than 125 cases of torture under Burgess' command over a 18, 19 year period. At that point, he had shot up to being commander of police. Um, that led ultimately to, to winning the, the, the Wilson case after uh, Andrew Wilson case after a couple of appeals. Uh, and then it led into death penalty cases, uh, fighting death penalty cases with other lawyers and activists, including Alice Kim and the death row 10, uh, who were 10 men on death row uh, based on tortured confessions by Burge. Some of them got exonerated. Uh, It led to the 
the clearing of death row by, by Governor Ryan back in 2003 and, and, and the pardoning of four of the death row 10 uh, on the basis of innocence and torture. That led to an international struggle uh, to the UN where Joey Mogul and others, uh, and also to the uh, Inter-American uh, Committee on Human Rights where Bernadine and, and Susan Zesch and myself and David Bates, we went to these uh, because we weren't getting any uh, recognition in terms of the torture here locally. Uh, that led to a special prosecutor, to a report, to many hearings, and then Burge being uh, charged uh, decades later with um, obstruction of justice and perjury and going to the pen federal penitentiary. Mm. Now we're up to 2010, uh, and we're still fighting these cases. Uh, we're fighting them in civil court, uh, men who have been exonerated. And um, the idea that Stan Willis came up with uh, years before about reparations for the men who were tortured uh, was uh, revitalized and brought to the fore by uh, a... Um, a wonderful intergenerational uh, and interracial movement, interracial movement that led uh, to uh, at a, a, a really unique political moment in this city where Rahm Emanuel was under attack for his uh, way he treated the African-American community after he was elected on the coattails of, of, of being Obama's guy. Um, and, and shutting down schools uh, and all the and shutting down medical clinics in the communities of, of color. So uh, this movement, as strong as it was, and the fact that Rahm was about to run for re-election, uh, actually accomplished uh, what, what you rightly call a very unique and, and, and wonderful uh, series of, of, of non-legal uh, reparations. Mm. These are reparations that were not reparations that were due because of uh, a court case. They're reparations that came due because of the, the, the moral and political and movement imperative uh, that, that happened in, in 2013-14 and early 2015. And that was led by survivors such as Daryl Cannon and Anthony Holmes, uh, and um, lawyers and activists um, and, uh, and, and some politicians. We were able to, to get some politicians on board, progressive politicians, and ultimately the reparations that, that, that were obtained not only was financial uh, compensation for some 60 survivors who had never gotten a penny uh, for their torture. And how much was that? That was 100000 per person. Got it. Certainly uh, not a huge amount, but on the other hand, it was a real recognition and it, and it didn't have anything to do with guilt or innocence. It had to do with torture. Mm. And then uh, quite significantly, uh, the city agreed to fund a, a, a center on the south side of Chicago that's still operative now, a center where men could, and, and their families uh, and other uh, victims of police violence could could be treated uh, psychologically, could come together, uh, could discuss uh, what happened to them, um, and also job uh, support, job training. And um, most significantly, and, and I think most people's point of view, was the fact that 
people, the Chicago uh, public schools would teach the history of police torture to eighth and 10th graders uh, in the spring semester. And that's been in play now for two or three years. Uh, people like Daryl Cannon and Ronald Kitchen uh, and uh, Anthony Holmes and Greg Banks. These are all torture survivors. They go and speak to these classes. Uh, they, I've had the honor of going and speaking to classes. Uh, and, and the fact that we and the torture survivors can be living examples to those young folks who know from their own experiences in the communities of color. They may have a brother or uh, a sister or, or a father or a mother who's in, uh, a victim of mass incarceration, or uh, they may have been beaten on the street. Uh, and so uh, to, to hear these stories and to understand uh, not only that th this is a systemic problem, but one that goes back in history, uh, and also one where men and women can stand up against it and, and can be living and shining examples of, of fighting against this system and coming out, if not whole, coming out uh, as leaders, uh, coming out as people uh, who are living history. And I think uh, in terms of all of that, Bill, the idea of the narrative, and, and you as a teacher uh, understand this uh, as well as anyone, uh, the narrative, for instance, in the Hampton case, the Hampton case started out as a shootout, right? Mm. And as we fought and the movement fought and, and, and the community fought and the survivors of that raid fought, the Panthers fought, it became known as a shoot-in, mm. 90 bullets to one. Then it became a murder because we, were, we showed how Fred was killed. Then, as we got the FBI evidence out, it became an assassination. Right. And, and, and you mentioned my book. And, and in the book, you can kind of see, you can trace the narrative of the police torture scandal. As I mentioned, started out as a decorated Vietnam veteran, a commander of police, a white uh, John Burge, uh, who was uh, charged or alleged to have committed, quote, police brutality against uh, a couple of black cop killers. Now, that narrative changed again uh, by the united struggle of, of lawyers and activists and survivors uh, and, and educators and, and progressive um, journalists like John Conroy, changing that narrative till today, uh, we look at it as a systemic and racist uh, uh, program of torture known to and participated in at the highest level of the Chicago Police Department, at the highest levels of the prosecutors of, of the state's attorney of Cook County, and by all the way up to Richard M. Daly, who was first prosecutor, the Cook County prosecutor, and later the mayor for 20 years, and that, um, that these men, many of whom were innocent, were tortured uh, and, and, and racially tortured. I mean, this wasn't just torture with electric shock and suffocation uh, and, and, and mock executions and all of the things that you connect to to places like uh, South Africa under apartheid or some South Central American countries under authoritarian dictatorships. Uh, but also that it was definitely the, the racial aspect of it in terms of not only what Burge and his men said, but the way they attacked the genitals, the way they attacked 
uh, black men uh, in, in their interrogations. Uh, this is all known now. This is the narrative that we have to continue to defend whenever we speak, whenever we write, uh, whenever we talk, uh, whenever we teach. And um, You know, that is such an elegant and helpful way to put it. The narrative, the fight over the narrative is in many ways the fight. One, I mean, one of the largest narratives is white people are superior, black people are inferior. That's driven this country for hundreds of years. That's a narrative we have to overcome. I, I find that such a helpful way to put it, Flint. And, and while I feel like you and I have much more to talk about, we're going to have to draw to a close. I want to ask you, what's the next chapter in the narrative of the People's Law Office and of Flint Taylor? Well, well um, we, I mean, it's interesting that in the last four or five months, um, the continuation of the two major, two of the, well, actually all three of the major narratives that run across my book and my history, Fred Hampton assassination, the Greensboro massacre, and the torture struggle, and the and all have had uh, new chapters uh, that we're either directly or indirectly involved in. And with regard to Hampton, of course, we spoke about the documents that have come out and Jeff and I are writing about it and speaking about the Hampton case 51 years later. And Monday, there'll be an editorial in the Sun-Times about the FBI should open its files about the FBI, about the assassination of Fred Hampton. Absolutely. Who would have thunk of that? No, it's great. It's a great example. You all say you want racial reconciliation. The new administration is pushing for to end systemic racism. Well, truth and reconciliation are sequential. You have to tell the truth first, and there doesn't seem to be any appetite for that. Well, and then right, right, and then and then we turn to the torture scandal, and uh, back uh, a few years ago, Jackie Wilson, who I mentioned earlier. Um, has been in the prison for 36 years, and uh, the, the torture commission gave him a new hearing and new trial. And lo and behold, the circle was complete from me representing Andrew to now, along with Elliot Schlosser of the Exoneration Project and John Stainthorpe representing Jackie. And so we've had a five-year struggle, and um, uh, thank goodness we had a very courageous African-American judge who fought against FOP and the prosecutors and, and brought justice to Jackie Wilson, uh, saying that his confession was was tortured back in 2018 after we did a hearing, giving him bond. Uh, so he's been out for two and a half years. And wow. Then we did a pandemic trial, Bill. I would guess probably one of the few. We went to 26 in California with masks in October, with the judge sitting behind a shield, social distancing in the courtroom, and did a two-week trial because the prosecutors wouldn't throw out Jackie's case. And we won that case. And Jackie is now a free man, and we got him a certificate of innocence from that same judge. So the circle in terms of the torture cases continues. There are men, of course, still in penitentiary. Uh, uh, we are still representing some of those, Joey Mogul and others who are, who, who are soldiers in the fight against torture. And what can I say about uh, looking at the looking through the mirror or 
of white supremacy and the Klan and the Nazis. And now we they have new names, right? The Proud Boys and QAnon. And I can't keep up with all the names, but we're still dealing with the same kinds of things. Uh, and we need to continue the narrative. I, I think we should come to an end now. And I want to just end by saying that my admiration for your work is limitless uh, your life, your work uh, opens up possibilities so f- for so many other people. i just uh, so grateful to you for all you do, all you are, and for joining me for 40 Minutes Under the Tree. I really appreciate it, Flynn. Hey, I'm so happy to do it, and right back at you, man. You you are been fighting for justice for longer than me. That's <laughs> that's because I'm old. <laughs> that's because I'm old. Flint, thank you so much. My best to Pat, and we will talk again soon. Be well, stay safe. Okay. Okay, y'all, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends from the podcast Ergo, Damon and Daniel, and to Malik Alim, esteemed producer, engineer, and co-conspirator. Under the Tree is written and hosted by Bill Ayers, produced and edited by me, Malik Alim. Our music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward. Keep rising and make your life a ladder for the youth with joy in my heart and freedom on my mind until next time.